Welcome to Clarified Butter, the podcast about meals, memories, and milk fats. I'm your host, Amy Allen. I'm speaking today with Andrew Agapur. Andrew is a scholar in religious studies. He's the school director at DSI Comedy Theater and an associate editor for Religion Dispatches. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, So I know that you are a religious studies PhD student now and you work in comedy, but your parents, you're from Charleston Mm -hmm. and your parents own a restaurant there? That's right. Yeah, they own a, it's kind of a Persian American restaurant that Uh has a nice combination of like beef stroganoff and hamburgers and also some uh, cuisine that most Americans would not be interested in. Uh, Chicken fess and June and lamb kebabs. Uh, so it's a fun, eclectic mix of stuff there. Cool. I am actually actually totally unfamiliar with Persian food. So what is chicken fesinju? Yeah, it's, uh, it's what's funny about Iranian cuisine is that uh, there, if you go to a restaurant in Iran, mm-hmm. and there are four dishes uh-huh. at every single place, and that's all you can get. And it's three styles of kebabs. One is like ground lamb and beef mixed together. Another is just lamb. And another is um, like a small chicken. Uh-huh. And then there's also this dish called uh, fesenjun, which is where you take pomegranate seeds uh-huh. and you cook them down forever <laughs> with like uh, walnut paste. And I've made it before, and it says, like, you have to cook it down for four or six hours. And I kept tasting it as I made it. And every hour, it was more disgusting <laughs> than the last. And then you hit six hours, and it's just delicious. Yeah. Uh, and so it's this So this dish is uh, kind of famous in Iran, and it's basically chicken that's been cooked in this weird alchemical substance. Yeah, just some magic happens. Uh, that, right. That sounds really good. There's a... Um, uh, Franklin Street in Chapel Hill, there's Mediterranean de- Deli, and they have something called pomegranate mohamara. Oh, what is that? That's some sort of sauce paste dip that's pomegranates and walnuts and roasted red peppers. And it doesn't look very appetizing, and I've never heard of it, but now I get it every single time I go because it's something addictive and delicious. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but... Uh, so what was it like to grow up in a restaurant? Yeah, uh, great question. So I actually grew up, the first three years of my life, we lived in the one-bedroom apartment above one of my parents' restaurants. Oh, wow. And there's lots of pictures and stories from that era that I can't remember that well. <laughs> uh, but, you know, pictures of me in a giant uh soup pot (laughs) down in the kitchen because my mom worked at the front of the house. She was the hostess Mm -hmm. and my dad was the head chef. And so the whole time that they were working, I was down in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's lots of cooks still at uh, one of our different restaurants that's still around today Mm -hmm. that were there then and helped raise me. The guy who helped taught me to ride a bike Uh uh, is somebody who's still our pastry chef. Oh, that's awesome. So it was like a very fun communal environment. Yeah. Uh, and also there was food everywhere. And food was definitely a big part of growing up. Uh, excess was important <laughs> in my family. You just want to have as much food around as possible. Right. Yeah. Where I, if, I imagine when you're living above the restaurant, most eating goes on in the restaurant. But did you, does dinner happen at home or in the restaurant, in the kitchen? Yeah. When I... So after during my first few years uh, as a human, <laughs> there the stories I've heard were that my dad was real snobby about what I ate. That he would make baby food out of because it's like a fancy restaurant. So he would take the best salmon <laughs> of the cut and grind it himself with like pears, and that would be my baby food. He was really proud of that. Nice. Uh, and then shortly after uh, that, we moved to. Uh, an actual house, and all of a sudden, my dad, who's uh, a gourmet chef, uh-huh. stopped having time to cook meals for the family, and it became my mother who cooked from like my age five to maybe age fifteen. Mm-hmm. She was the 
cook. And she was an amazing mother. She made dinner every single night. Mm -hmm. Just a terrible cook <laughs> who hated every minute of it. So it was all, and she's British. So it was always boiled meat, uh, boiled uh -huh. potatoes, a boiled starch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you'd mix them all together. The biggest, mm -hmm. greatest thing that happened in my childhood when it came to my mother's cooking was we bought the first George Foreman grill ever made. It was like yeah. the day that it came out. Mm -hmm. She's like, that looks like it'll make my life easier. <laughs> uh, and so we switched from having boiled meats to uh, George, George Foreman, Foreman cooked meats. meats. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had a we had one of those white George Foreman grills that my dad got. And the only thing it was ever used for in our house was to cook bacon. Uh -huh. That They realized that it has that little catch tray and it just puts it and you don't ever have to flip anything cooks bacon just right and it, i never saw us try to cook anything else other than, i didn't know how to cook bacon when i got to my own house without a george Foreman uh, grill so I, you just stick it in it's like a bacon toaster right oh that's so great <laughs> do you now have a preference about how you like your bacon and are, is it a nostalgic wish for that George Foreman style? I would. I don't think it's ever quite as good as that. I should probably get a George Foreman grill for that purpose. I sort of just to like suit my own fancy, I like go and get the thick cut bacon at the farmer's market or there's a weird unrefrigerated area at the grocery store I go to where they have like heavily salted bacon that doesn't need to be refrigerated from somewhere in North Carolina, I think from Waynesboro. Wow. And it's just there next to all the other like Oscar Mayer bacon, but not refrigerated. And I feel fancy oh, getting yeah. that, but really it's just a lot more fat and salt. And I cook it on my cast iron stove and feel very superior. Oh yeah. That's but amazing. I think I would prefer just like any store bacon on a George Foreman grill. Yeah, sometimes that's what you're just chasing. <laughs> yeah. Just chasing that first taste of bacon. I'm acting really authentic, but mm -hmm. the thing that would really hit the spot is, yeah. The first time I ever tried bacon, I was 21 years old. What? <laughs> because I grew up Muslim. Oh, you know, yeah. You know, never had any pork products. I stopped, you know, self-identifying as Muslim maybe in my teenage years, uh -huh. but still had this weird holdover about pork and I like resisted trying it. And then somebody gave me a taste of bacon at a party <laughs> and it was just so good. And it was so good that I then refused to buy it. Uh -huh. Kind of like how like people who smoke cigarettes, like, well, I don't buy cigarettes, so I'm yeah. not addicted to smoking. Mm -hmm. uh, and I finally... Uh, took the plunge while in North Carolina, <laughs> so in my mid-20s. I was like, I'm going to buy bacon. And then we had bacon always in our house because I bought it every single week for like a year. <laughs> and I got just disgustingly uh, like gross with bacon and got really sick of it. Yeah. I I had a slight bacon fallout because I, I was dating a guy who just took bacon as a dish to potlucks. Like, you didn't really know how to cook. Everyone's always happy that bacon's there. Took a plate of bacon and take it to a potluck. That's a good move. And I knew we were going to go have a breakup conversation, or at least a hard conversation that I hoped wouldn't be us breaking up, but I suspected it would. And to sort of, like, as, like, my shield, I went to the Whole Foods like breakfast bar because it was like first thing in the morning. Uh -huh. I was like I just have to get this over with. I went to the Whole Foods breakfast bar, filled up a whole to-go box of bacon, and like showed up on his doorstep like, we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think that then that ruined his attendance to other potlucks from then on because he associates a bounty of bacon <laughs> just a ton of bacon <laughs> with being broken up with? Uh, I hope so. My vindictive <laughs> side is like, uh, I hope he can never look at bacon again. But I don't think anything could have made that happen. I think it's a great way to break up with someone because <laughs> they're still groggy. It's early in the morning. They wake up. They are broken up with, but A, it's early in the morning, so they've got a whole day to like work it out before they need to go to bed. And you leave, and there's bacon right there. Right there. Just immediate comfort. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping it would show, like, look how great I am. But 
Some things can't be stopped, even with <laughs> yeah. bacon. Yeah, what's it like to try bacon for the first time as an adult? Like, what's that? Oh, like? it's so good. It's <laughs> yeah. so good. It's, I remember, there's some foods that you don't eat when you're an adult because you think you don't like them. Like, uh-huh. And then you kind of realize that you were just being silly. This happened to me like a week ago with sour cream. <laughs> My whole life, as a kid, I didn't like it. And so I just thought, oh, I'm one of those people who doesn't like sour cream. Mm-hmm. And then I taste it, and it's amazing. And I've lost 30 years of my life. <laughs> but with bacon, it was something that had always smelled good mm-hmm. and looked good. And in our country, it is one of the most celebrated meats, if not <laughs> objects. You know, bacon is as American as uh, American eagles. <laughs> and the uh, anticipation of bacon was really big. I knew it was going to be a special occasion when I tried it. Mm-hmm. And it lived up to all of those expectations. Did the rest of pork? <laughs> Most of pork has been a letdown. I yeah. Think. You know, that's bacon fair. Is, yeah. That's fair. I mean, what's top? The bacon's number one best pork product. What would you say number two is? For me, it's barbecue. Yeah. Eastern North Carolina apple hog vinegar mm-hmm. sauce barbecue is like, it's something I also didn't think I liked when I was little, but by like high school, I realized that I loved it. That's that's, that's probably and that's not even too. so much a cut so much as like a whole hunk <laughs> slow cooked. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a whole process. Yeah. it's not just like a piece of pork. Yeah, I think yeah. number three is pork rinds. Ooh, good pork yeah. rinds. You know, like it's fried, crackly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had some recently from that butcher shop in Saxabaha. Uh huh. Apparently, they make pork rinds like once. On a full moon, <laughs> they do it real rare, and uh-huh. people line up for miles around. Uh, and somebody just brought me these pork rinds, like apropos nothing, like just peace. <laughs> I've acquired them. Yeah. And I never had pork rinds before. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, my. it was like the bacon experience. Yeah. Like, this is, it, it, you know what? The thing when I ate bacon was probably the closest thing to having sex, where it's, <laughs> everyone says it's going to be awesome. You're biologically primed to experience it as awesome, <laughs> both sex and bacon. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same about pork rinds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all of your experience, first experiences with pork products sound like a shady drug deal. Uh-huh. Let's just say I'm going to get this kid hooked. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So without pork being a part of it, what are some favorite like Iranian foods? Uh, the best Iranian dishes, mm-hmm. uh, as I've experienced them, are all a variety of, I guess you would call it like a version of a pilaf or a risotto. It, it's something mm-hmm. where you are cooking a whole meal within rice. Uh-huh. And the way that the Iranians do it, and the way that my dad does it every time I visit home, mm-hmm. is you basically have a big kind of Dutch oven-like uh, dish and by eye, they will know exactly how much rice to add to a really wet braise. Uh-huh. So maybe you throw some lamb and beans in and you cook them down until uh, they're almost ready. Then you'll add a little bit of water, add rice. Uh, Iranians just instantly know, uh, based on some genetic predisposition, <laughs> what the right ratio is. And then they'll seal the dish Usually there's a towel mm-hmm. on top to like absorb extra moisture. That's somehow really important. Yeah. And then uh, it'll just sit there on low heat for like, like a magical amount of time. Or <laughs> uh, my dad will just like take a nap and then wake up when it's ready. Uh, and then all of a sudden the dish is there. But it can be any combination of meats mm-hmm. and spices and uh, different liquids. So maybe mm-hmm. it's a tomato based liquid with lamb or mm-hmm. chicken with dill and um, chicken stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's always just amazingly delicious. And I've never been able to do it myself. I think it's so hard. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the big blasphemies of my own cooking is that I have one of those uh, like Japanese rice cookers that <laughs> is intelligent and mm-hmm. like will cook your rice for you because rice is so intimidating to me. 
Yeah, I've never been able to figure out rice. Uh, a friend of mine in college showed up to college with a rice cooker for their dorm because he knew he he would need rice regularly. Uh, and his roommate also had a rice cooker. And they used them both. Like, they always had them set up in their dorms making rice. That's really cute. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's... I know you went to Iran recently. Yeah. Is there a difference between, like, the American Iranian food that you grew up with and what you experienced there? Shockingly not. Uh Uh, So what was so interesting about going to Iran was that, you know, my dad makes these four dishes at the restaurant and then he has his three or four varieties of rice, you know, bakes that he makes at home. And I was expecting to go to Iran and for it to be really different, just like you would expect if someone from America were to move to Iran and start a restaurant, there's no way that that's going to be a perfect reflection. But partly because Iranian culture is so homogenous and so it self-identifies around its cuisine so much, Mm -hmm. there really are these core dishes that every single restaurant has and people are really proud of. Uh, A big part of my trip to Iran with my father, which is uh, last year, Mm -hmm was seeing how much of his personality that I thought was idiosyncratic was actually deeply cultural. Oh, wow. You know, oh, there's this dish the dad likes to make. Oh, man, this is what every single other <laughs> Iranian makes everyone say. Uh-huh. Uh, or the same with this, these customs. Have you ever heard of tarof before? Uh, tarof is a hospitality custom where you can think of it as... Southern hospitality on steroids. It is <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> downright crazy how mm-hmm. hospitable everyone is to each other in this kind of coded way. So, uh-huh. for example, you go to a restaurant and you finish your meal and you ask for the check. And this happened at every restaurant. The owner will come and say, please don't pay. It's such an honor to have you here. And you say, no, I insist <clears throat> on paying. This is the best meal I've had in my life. <laughs> I have to pay. I'll give you a thousand dollars. They say no. You, I cannot let you pay any money. If you wanted to pay a little bit, of, the food cost was five dollars. Just give me that. No, uh-huh. I want to pay what I'm supposed to pay. What does everyone else pay? Uh-huh. I want to pay that and double. Okay, just pay me what everyone else pays. It's thirty dollars, and then you give them thirty-five dollars, and then you like give each other five compliments, <laughs> and you leave. And it's like that with everything. Everywhere you go, people are offering you things. Like mm-hmm. I, we were walking on the street and a construction worker was eating his lunch and before the trip my dad told me never make eye contact or look at the food of anyone who's eating oh and i had forgotten that so i just looked at what this guy was eating for lunch Mm because i was interested and he jumped up and started talking and my dad was translating Oh, he wants to know if you're hungry because you looked at his food and he really wants to give you his food. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, like, we, now you need to tell him, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, what I love about this system, Tarof, this mm-hmm. hospitality custom, uh, is that it's always about going above and beyond to help the other person and make them feel like royalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was something that my dad always did with us growing up, or especially he taught us to do that with guests. Uh, whenever a guest comes over, and even people who come to the restaurant, you want them to feel like they are able to eat as much, drink as much, do whatever they want, and that it will never affect you, the host. Um, the idea, I think, is that we're all kind of, in day-to-day life, it's harder to live a good life. There's scarce resources. We have to save our pennies and worry about what's going to happen the next day. And during these moments where we break bread together, mm-hmm. Tarof is about kind of pretending that there is unlimited resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that you as a guest don't even need to worry at all about all that we have here for you. Uh, and that's a beautiful custom. Up until that trip to Iran, so many things that my dad did would just annoy me because I didn't know that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. Like he always, whenever you get to my parents' house, 
do you want tea? Do you want tea? Let me get you some tea. No, let me get you some tea. You want some tea? No, I really don't want tea. Why don't you want tea? I'm going to make some tea. I'm just going to leave it next to your bed. And then if you want it later, you can, you can drink it. Uh, and then with food, uh, my wife, Emmy, gets uh, really frustrated because she'll eat a plate of food and then he'll pile on an entire second helping. Please eat this. It's okay if you just throw it away. If you don't want it, eat as much as you want. And she'll be like sick to her stomach looking at a pile of lamb rice. <laughs> uh, but I, it's a, a really fun, beautiful custom. Yeah. Uh, I think. You know, that sounds amazing. It sounds like both a dream and a little bit of like a politeness nightmare. Uh-huh. Like, oh, this is so wonderful and like bountiful and kind. But also it's that feeling of reaching, both people reaching for the check and not knowing how to navigate like, no, I got it. Oh, you, no, I, we'll both, we should split it. No, I'll definitely, I'll take all of it. Like, I hate right. that moment. Uh, yeah. I'm so uncomfortable with negotiating that. And it sounds like a, <laughs> a beautiful expansion of that moment. Right. But also probably just as exhausting, right? Because <laughs> yeah. now you're competing about who, this happened while we were there. Everyone competes over who gets the check, mm-hmm. uh, where people wrestle over the check. <laughs> and restaurants there don't split the bill. I'm like, you know, it might be easier if we just split the bill rather than this crazy contest. Uh, do you ever find yourself in politeness contests over food? Oh, gosh. I mean, it mostly in that sort of like the uncomfortable moment of like you get your food first and I, do I start eating? Do I wait for you to get? I always want to be polite. But as soon as you tell me it's okay, I really do want to start eating or who's going to take up the bill, those sorts of things. I, uh, as far as I always think of like, because I grew up in North Carolina to many generations of North Carolinians. So I think about like both of my grandmothers, uh, it's much more like table manners than like that sort of. Uh, I don't know, like courteous politeness. Right. It's just sort of like how you sit and not having your elbows on the table mm-hmm. and uh, sort of saying thank you a lot. Was that instilled in you as a kid? It, not, <laughs> not re- it was at my grandmother's house. Uh-huh. It was sort of like uh, whenever I would call my grandparents, they would put me on speakerphone and my mom or dad would be standing behind me on the phone and anytime I would say, yeah, they would say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Because I just didn't, they didn't expect me to speak that way to them, but to my grandmother who grew up in Mount Olive, North Carolina, uh, and is just very, always, always polite above everything. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Please and thank you. Um, but like it's it's more of a it's a sort of weird distinction between manners and mm-hmm. the overflowing hospitality. They were also both all of my grandparents very hospitable and hostesses and hosts. And I think that's yeah, what's similar about them. So interesting. Mm-hmm. There are these differences, right? That mm-hmm. uh, in one system it's about how you comport yourself, and in another it's about the way that you communicate excess and surplus to each mm-hmm. other. But what's so similar is they both attempt to build a shared vocabulary that allows us to communicate and share with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that if you break those rules, it can be really weird. Mm-hmm. So if you, for example, go to Iran and the restaurant uh, tour says, please, I don't want you to pay. It's so great that you're here. And then you walked off. Mm-hmm. That would be terrible. Right. <laughs> and they would track you down and be like, ah, I'm, I'm so sorry, but I need to ask you to pay. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and similarly, your parents hovering over your shoulder, it's that within that system of your grandparents saying, yeah, instead of yes, ma'am, mm-hmm. is probably pretty significant, even though it would seem so silly to us. Right. It's just, it's playing along to let this, let everyone know like we both understand this we respect one another not necessarily that we expect all of these things to follow but i think i was just thinking my uh 
paternal grandfather passed away last fall. And we went to his funeral. And this is the first funeral that I've sort of been old enough to remember the details of. And it's at uh, a Methodist church in Burlington, North Carolina. It's an old Methodist church that my grandfather and grandmother have been to for years. And they had a family lunch before the service. Like we had the graveside service and went to the church and they set up tables and put tablecloths on them and brought out nice china and silver and set up these casserole dishes and a few ladies from the church served us lunch on this very nice, elegant china. And I think it's that's a very Southern thing to me. It could happen all over the country, but it seemed like a very, like, way to experience sort of community and hospitality and grief and uh, church especially um that they were going to put out this sort of fancy where as Mm -hmm. though it were christmas or easter yeah and sort of treat us to that um like so it's you know anytime anyone is mourning in the south they hold kitchen counters covered with casseroles but and it was like a a version of that mm-hmm. for our family which was really nice and yeah it's beautiful yeah especially in a public space like that where often it's at the communal potluck where we bring the worst serving utensils right <laughs> the the crappy spatula mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter if it gets lost in the wash mm-hmm. uh, because it's a public setting but to say that I'm coming here with the best stuff that we've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's such a great sign of support and trust and uh, such a great way to not only signal support to the family, but to, to make a statement about the community that's there. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a really nice gesture. Um, and uh, importantly, I think in many of those situations, people we'll get through a whole day of just stress and emotionalness and planning and making sure everything runs smoothly and get to I don't know, 6 p.m. and realize they haven't eaten. Right. They have that built into a day of just like, no one has to figure it out. Exactly. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of a friend of mine had a baby recently and I went over there with a the casserole and the uh, both grandmothers of the new baby were there. Mm-hmm. This was very, this maybe within a week of the baby being born. And the, there's this really specific and funny and fun gender division where mm-hmm. in the living room were all the women who had attended the party. Mm-hmm. And the baby was there. There was a female baby and the mom was there. Uh, and the maternal grandmother was there and then the paternal grandmother was in charge of all of these casseroles that were showing up right where are we going to put all of this food that doesn't even fit the fridge anymore Uh and the men were out in the backyard grilling Uh because it was a cookout and it was uh, a really fun thing for me because everyone who i knew in that space was of a certain politics that I identify with that's kind of post-gender norms, and we think mm-hmm. of ourselves as uh, you know, liberated of these kind of trappings of assigned roles. Mm-hmm. And yet we were participating in them not out of duty, but in a kind of celebratory way that it's, mm-hmm. you know, that these traditions, uh, we are going to actively participate in them right now mm-hmm. uh, and you know, make a lot of awkward jokes about it. <laughs> but it, it was, you know, having a purpose like filling the refrigerator full of food. Yeah, there's a certain moment when those, like, a very traditional moment, like a baby just being born, those sort of roles, it's like, well, what else do we do? <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, can I ask what kind of casserole you brought? It was a lasagna. Mm. And not my best <laughs> lasagna. Uh so did, um, for something like that, I am always curious, like, what do you take to a potluck or something where you're sort of looking to impress? So uh, this is 
so shameful. <laughs> but I have a real pathetic showboaty streak in the way that I go to potlucks. Oh, and, me too. I think you're not alone. Okay, okay good. But I will, before you uh, are so polite about this, <laughs> I'll tell you what I do. And it's not that I'm trying to make the best food or the most tasty food or the food that people are going to uh, be the most impressed by. I love, instead, it's all about like the weird shit that will be funny. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's kind of what I, like, you know, I'll go to a potluck and uh, make my own version of a stuffed crust pizza or Doritos, Loco, uh, Doritos tacos, uh -huh. whatever like the weird garbage food is. I'll make my own version. Uh -huh. Or I remember going to a potluck and making an ice cream where the base was uh, cream steeped in really hot peppers. <laughs> and the ice cream was, instead of being a dessert, was a dip. And like thinking, oh, man, this is so avant-garde. I'm going to love people's wine. intense. But it's, yeah, I'm kind of over that phase. But there was a really solid three or four years where every potluck was an opportunity <laughs> to do some ridiculous dramatic thing that was probably just a cry for attention yeah. <laughs> i mean but that's like that's very but that's a lot of effort like you really did the work which i think oh, yeah. is something that makes cries for attention like sometimes bearable and okay it's like well you put in the time right what will be a, a cry for attention that is no work at all but that'd be like showing up with a kfc bucket or something well, I think that's really typical. I think it would be something that, um, spending a lot of money on something, I guess, mm -hmm. is the traditional, like, cry for attention or, like, looking to impress without actually right. doing it. Or the catered stuff. Right. It's like a catering company made these deviled <laughs> eggs. Yeah. Uh, what about you? What's, do you have any go-to casserole dishes if you're either trying to impress... I have two uh -huh. questions. Yeah. <laughs> Question A, what's your casserole dish if it's, mm -hmm. I got invited to a potluck, today is Wednesday, it's Friday, this is the casserole I know I can make easy and it always works, mm -hmm. and then what's the casserole or potluck dish that is the fancy putting in eight hours of work trying to impress dish? Um, so the, the easy one is that my mom has a great pimento cheese recipe. And also both of these are just really trying to perform perform my like folksy southernness. Mm -hmm. Just like the cast iron skillet bacon. It's it's the same thing. Uh -huh. uh, but my mom has a great pimento cheese recipe that can be served cold or if I'm going to like a party, can be baked and it's like a hot cheese dip for like wow. chips, which is really I've good. I've never had baked it's really good it's real i mean it's just melty yeah cheese mayonnaise it's so good yeah, that's awesome um, does it all turn into one texture just with those little red dots floating within it more or less it's a little bit it's not like as uniform as a queso it has more variation and sort of lumps mm -hmm. it's kind of lumpy um and you creamy those lumps and then the little bit yeah because it's all the shredded cheese in the middle of the creamy mayonnaise deliciousness. Um, so that's my, that, because I can buy bags of shredded cheese and it's really just a mixing thing, that's my go, quick go-to. And if I have time and want to impress, I will make a corn pudding. Ooh. Um, now, my corn pudding, mm -hmm. do you, is this a... Like a corn bread with more liquid in it. Uh, yeah, base. It's somewhere between creamed corn and cornbread. It's like a corn souffle, uh -huh. uh, sort of uh, that you have corn, and the one that I've made also has uh, onions and bell peppers and cheese and a sort of fluffy eggy bread. But it's mo. It has a lot of corn in it. Uh, that that's sort of the predominant. That sounds that's great. And it, yeah, it's a really good, like, sweet, savory mm -hmm. uh, casserole. I My big problem with casseroles is when they're soupy. 
with yeah. a lot of like cream of chicken or cream of mushroom, which is very typical and traditional. But I, my, I didn't eat eggs for many years because my dad once put cream of mushroom soup in an omelet. And I couldn't tell what was egg and what was cream of mushroom soup. So gross. And it, I couldn't eat either for almost a decade. And I've worked my way back to really dry eggs. Uh-huh. Uh, but That's I so still funny. get that kind of grossed out feeling when I have cream of mushroom soup. Where I'm like, is this mushrooms or eggs? It doesn't make sense. But it's no, a- I'm with you. That's, mm-hmm. There's something really gross to me about the texture of that. There's that texture where it's not liquid mm-hmm. and it's not solid. It's like that weird spongy, mm-hmm. or it's not even spongy. It's like snot. It's, it's like gooey. It's, yeah, yeah, gooey. It's mm-hmm. gooey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Not good. Just, mm-hmm. um, but the, your potluck dishes sound very like technically like. Are you? Do you like to like gourmet cook like your dad? I do. I and I. Am a total nerd about it, uh-huh. and Emmy will be the first to tell you that. In that regard, I'm the worst kind of hobbyist. <laughs> I will get really obsessed with one recipe, buy a hundred dollars worth of gear, <laughs> perfect it mm-hmm. like a science project, and then eat so many of that dish in the pursuit of creating the perfect version to take to that one party, mm-hmm. that then I get totally sick of it. So I recently, my most recent really focused experiment was on a six-inch flourless chocolate cake. Ooh. I would just, I wanted to make a smaller, usually they're nine inches, uh-huh. it was like a more standard dessert size. And I was throwing a party where it was actually a, a small dinner party where a good friend of mine in my PhD program, we have the same advisor and we were both a little too intimidated to invite him to one of our houses for dinner. Uh-huh. So we decided that we would bring dinner to him mm-hmm. and do a kind of in and out. Don't leave any mess. Uh, that was our challenge. Like how mm-hmm. can we show up with everything plates and every, you know, everything uh-huh. included. Uh, so that he doesn't have to clean afterwards. And I had this idea in my mind, six-inch flourless chocolate cake. And I think I made 13 of them. Oh, my God. I made made two a day for (laughs) a week leading up to it with these, like, I have spreadsheets of tracking, like, two tablespoons Grand Marnier added. Mm -hmm. What if I do that and keep that extra liquid what if i do that but subtract two tablespoons of liquid from somewhere else uh-huh. uh what about that combined with whipped cream with a little bit of cinnamon in it uh-huh. uh, and i'll get really nerdy and really elaborate and i'll make emmy eat all of whatever the dish <laughs> is of the month and just this morning i was debating whether to make this cake for my mother-in-law who's mm-hmm. visiting tomorrow i decided i I can't eat another bite. <laughs> it's so, it's just, I'm just, so, it's kind of like when I first binged on bacon. Uh-huh. It's just too yeah. much. That's amazing, though. Like that kind of dedication. I am in no way that focused on doing something well. Because <laughs> you're a healthy, well rounded person. <laughs> but I, I remember you mentioned once that you were into making bitters. Was that a similar. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it was single-minded a, pursuit. Yeah, it was another one of those pursuits, and this was with a good friend of mine uh, who has since moved away. But we decided to make cocktail bitters. Mm-hmm. This involves making, uh, I think we made maybe twenty different tinctures, uh, where you're just soaking a single spice or herb or root into mm-hmm. like Everclear or some other really strong alcohol. Mm-hmm. And then it's all about mixing those things together. And it's, again, really nerdy, really fun. <laughs> you can get out your beakers and do your measurements. Uh-huh. And that's a great excuse to drink a lot together <laughs> because you have to start making, you know, drinks out of these various bitters. The big mistake we made was in an improvisational flourish, <laughs> I thought, you know, we're soaking all these spices, your mm-hmm. cardamom, your turmeric, all these, we're soaking all these in Everclear. Mm-hmm. What if we just did peppercorns? 
So I got all, I got a whole like thing of peppercorns, awesome. put them in a mason jar, put uh, <laughs> alcohol on it, let it sit for two weeks and tasted it and realized <laughs> that I had made mace. <laughs> that was actually a yeah. weapon that, that I had created. It was one of the worst <laughs> experiences of my life. It hurt so bad. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, we just dumped it uh, in the sink. Oh, man. Uh, but if I could go back, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit less, fewer peppercorns, you could make like a Bloody Mary. There. Oh. Mm. But I think hubris was what <laughs> right. caused our mouths to stink. But if you think about it enough, you'll re- revive... The bitter pursuit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to start my own podcast. The, yeah, bitter, the bitter pursuit. Bitter pursuit. <laughs> you just marinating spices and flying too close to the sun. <laughs> exactly. So what about you? Are you somebody who, clearly you're not this crazy. Mm-hmm. Do you have recipes that are in rotation that you're always getting a little bit better at? I I have a, a kind of limited scope of things that I, I, I will look up a recipe online and try it very randomly. But if not that, then it's some uh, version of pasta or a fancy salad or like very basic sort of staple foods. Something that I think my entire family has a experimental bent towards is gumbo my dad is obsessed with making gumbo he has he's kind of fanatical about it he's been written up in the Greensburg newspaper for his gumbo recipe and he's taught a cooking class down at um ochre for their ochre folk school uh just about his gumbo wow and can i pause and just say uh that can listeners of this podcast click somewhere to find a write-up <laughs> about your dad's uh, it's, it's an attachment to a write-up about his fantasy of a like inter- a collection of international grocery stores in this one area of Greensboro that has since been developed for something else, but he, he likes to go out and find the little um, like the grocery store for each nationality that's hidden in strip malls all over the city. Amazing. You know, they're all out on like some like four lane road, just hidden uh-huh. in a bunch of like other stores that you wouldn't pay attention to. But everyone who's an immigrant from that area knows that that's the place they go to get the ingredients they need to make their food. And my dad really wanted those to be more discoverable and wow. centralized. And so there is a great huge uh, international food market called Super G Mart in Greensboro, but he wanted to like have a little shopping center of all of, of like the butcher and the Chinese grocery store and the Mexican grocery store and uh, a baker. Not all, you know, a certain ethnicity, but some sort of very small, specific food type. Like it could be like a walkable grocery store, but in different. Um, actual stores wow and so he was really pumped about this idea and uh in the greensboro news and record if you search lewis allen it will probably pop up and there's a link to his gumbo recipe because his fantasy is to be able to make a gumbo going through all those stores and getting the different ingredients you want to make is that the nature of gumbo yes uh, it's, I mean, we're not, uh, Cajun, we're not from Louisiana, so it's not really our, our thing, but it is a, it's French because it starts with a roux, it, like, that you, uh, have flour and butter that you melt and sort of brown together and that you add these vegetables and all of the food from New Orleans and that area of Louisiana is very, sort of, like, influenced by French and Spanish and African sort of all colliding as well as many other cultures, Native American and like there's okra is a main ingredient, which is really American, I believe, or African. Maybe my history. Um, But uh, okra and shrimp and tomatoes and celery and onion 
just all sort of, and my dad gets this really good sausage called moonshine sausage from a specific mm-hmm. weird butcher in Pittsburgh. Maybe sausages will make you blind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he he has his gumbo that he makes, and then my brother actually lived in New Orleans for three years and worked as a waiter. So he was sort of in the restaurant industry and saw these gumbos that they made there where they'd make a really dark root. Uh-huh. They'd brown that flour and butter for a really long time until it's almost black and it's a much deeper, different taste. And so he has his own dark gumbo that he makes. And I have not experimented with it as much, but at least once this summer, I'll go to the farmer's market and just pick out gumbo stuff, make my attempt, which is just a much less frequent attempt than mm-hmm. I think either of them make. But I feel like it's a family experiment. That's really cool. I like yeah. that a lot. I, can mm-hmm. I tell you about the only gumbo I've ever made or had? Yes. I've never... Uh, okra kind of makes me creepy crawly. I don't know why. <laughs> the goo. The goo, exactly. <laughs> so I've never been a big gumbo person. And in 2010 or so... Mm-hmm. Remember when Words with Friends came out? <laughs> yeah. I played it for like three years straight. Mm-hmm. And it was with random people online. And one of them I started having a conversation with. And his name was Jonathan Bankston. I don't know if you <laughs> believe that. Yeah. But uh, we just started talking. Uh-huh. And he is from Mississippi. And he's a plumber, and he told me about his family. And we talked through a bunch of random stuff that happened in each of our lives. Because it has this chat window, you yeah. know. Uh, and a couple times, the game would get deleted, and we'd have to find each other, like, uh-huh. within the system. And at one point, he sent me this gumbo recipe. And I remember, like, this had all happened so slowly. But it never was like a fast friendship, you mm-hmm. know. It was just being polite, and then it slowly <laughs> yeah. turned into like an acquaintance. But then I had, I was like, I have to make this gumbo, uh-huh. and I don't like gumbo that much. <laughs> and so I made that gumbo. I bought one of those big pots. You know, you have to mm-hmm. like a really big stock pot to make yeah. at least this recipe because I had multiple seafood things in it yeah a lot will have like crab and shrimp or shrimp and catfish yes yeah that's what this one had Mm -hmm. and it was a light roux Mm -hmm. Uh, and i decided to throw a party and it was my words with friends gumbo party (laughs) we're just gonna eat this gumbo and see how it is and it was delicious Uh it was so good Uh, and i told him it was delicious and then i just like a month later got sick of the game (laughs) and we haven't talked since i feel really bad but that's amazing like that's one of the most positive and optimistic like uh, cell phone game or internet like, yeah. interactions that I've ever heard. It's like the inverse of a dick pic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a comeback recipe. Yeah. Oh, that's magical. I, I, if you still have it, I would love to see that comeback recipe. Um, so one thing I have to ask is when you have a night totally alone, your wife and me is gone, you don't have any comedy or scholarly commitment. What do you eat? I eat. If, it depends on if Emmy is out of town. Uh-huh. If Emmy's out of town, there's always a comfort food dish that I make that she thinks is disgusting, <laughs> and so I won't eat it in her presence. Uh-huh. And that uh, comes from my British heritage. It was uh-huh. a food that I would eat a lot when I lived in England for a year, and it's toasted piece of bread, uh-huh. tinned beans on top of that, and a fried egg on top of that. Uh-huh. I know beans on toast. Uh-huh. I love it so much. Like <laughs> when the yolk mixes with the beans. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, you have to have like shitty bread. <laughs> it can't be like a nice sourdough. It has to just be store-bought. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like Wonder Bread would be the ideal for this recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, it just hits home for some reason, really. And it's partly because that's something that I grew up on with my British grandmother. Mm-hmm. We would spend time with her. It was always eggs and toast and beans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really is objectively not <laughs> But there's something about that, something that you eat when you're young with someone who is a comforting figure that, well, that will always feel good, taste good to eat. Exactly. What about you? A food like that that I ate when I was young, 
um, I think, um, well, I think a very similar thing is that my mom would always make PB&Js with peanut butter jelly and butter, like mm. several butter pats around, like not melted at all, just like cold butter pats uh, on the sandwich. Uh, but I, ne- I never had a PB&J that she made that didn't have butter on it. I don't know why. I know she loves butter. I don't know where she learned to do that if that was something my grandmother did. But that's my favorite way to have a PB&J. That sounds amazing. It's really it's good. It's kind of mind-blowing. I never I really thought about it, but that's probably delicious. It's wonderful. Cold butter <laughs> like, there's, there's nothing that adding a couple of pats of butter is like, makes it worse. That's yeah. never a thing. That's awesome. Um, do you put it on the... Where is the butter in relation to the peanut butter and the jelly? I don't have a specific memory of how she made it, but when I make it for myself, I have bread, cold butter, and then smear the peanut butter over it Ooh. to like hold it in place. Yeah. And then the other side is jelly. That's right. pretty cool. Can, yeah, you don't uh, want it in the jam all slip sliding around. You want that peanut butter to hold it in place. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like a delightful surprise mm-hmm. which part of the sandwich will have the pads. <laughs> yeah. Which bite will be the most buttery? Mm. Oh, I'm going to make that tonight. It sounds <laughs> you so should. good. I hope you do. Um, so, Andrew, you've been wonderful to talk to. Thank you so much Thank for coming on Clarified Butter. Uh, we like to end with a, sort of a, a toaster blessing. Is there something that you say before you eat or that you like when people say before they eat? There is something that mm-hmm. I recently started to say before mm-hmm. I eat. We were talking earlier about Tarof, this uh-huh. hospitality contest. The ultimate Tarof move mm-hmm. in Iran is to say Tarof Nemikonem, which mm-hmm. means I'm not Tarofing you. <laughs> so if you offer somebody, please take this meal from me, please uh-huh. eat with me. And they say, no, 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 please don't do the trouble. And you say Tarof Nemikonem. I'm not being polite. I really want to break bread with you right now. And so that's uh, something that I like to say as a signal that we don't have to play games anymore, that we're just present with one another. It's just being actually kind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So it's Tarof uh, Nemikonen. Tarof Nemikonen. Yeah, you know that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ashley Meltzer and me, Amy Allen. This episode features additional audio production from Nick Vandenberg. To learn more about our guests and about us, visit clarifiedbuttershow.com or keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram at clarifiedb. And by all means, don't forget to hit subscribe. Until next time, eat what you like and say thank you.